Good morning, church family. I sure am grateful for these advances in technology that allow us to gather together online for this worship service. But I also look forward to the time when all of us will be back together in this room and we'll be able to worship the Lord in one location. And uh, just want to mention that, uh, it, it, you know, we, we miss you all. It is not the same without you here. And at the conclusion of this service, Pastor David will be up to share a little bit about our plans for reentry. This morning, we are continuing in our one-story theme. We've said that the Bible is a collection of 66 individual books uh, written in many different places across the Mediterranean basin and the Middle East over a span of about 1,500 years in three distinct languages by uh, just over 35 different authors. And yet, and yet there is unity to the Bible. All these events that took place over a, a span of thousands of years across different cultural settings are part of a unified plan. And as a result, we can understand the Bible in terms of an unfolding story. This year, we're looking at how the various books of the Bible contribute to that story. And today, we come to the book of Ezekiel. Now, by way of a refresher, our story begins with the creative activity of a personal, relational, and all-powerful God. In the culmination of his creative activity as mankind, human beings are created in the image of God and placed in the Garden of Eden to, to have dominion in terms of stewardship and service over the creation, to, to cultivate the resources that are there in the garden and to take this blessing that's in the garden and expand it outward to the whole earth. But we don't have to go very far to see that mankind fails in, in this task. They rebel against their creator. And rather than scrap the whole enterprise... God sets a plan in motion to redeem his creation. God called the nation of Israel into a special covenant relationship. He said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And God gave the Israelites his Torah or his instruction. And God told the people that, that obedience to his instruction would bring blessing to the nation. And it would also allow Israel to be God's representatives to the rest of humanity. You see, uh, kingdom of God values were to be lived out in the promised land. Israel was to be a new Eden of sorts, with the whole nation serving as a kingdom of priests and reflecting God's image to the rest of humanity through their faithfulness to this covenant. And if you remember from the book of Deuteronomy, the essence of God's law, uh, it could be summed up in one word, love. We see this in the first passage that Paige read for us. Or just, just think for a moment about what be, might be the, the most familiar passage in all of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And we see that the way that the Israelites were to demonstrate their love for the Lord was by walking in obedience to his commands and listening to his voice. But as 
we recall from the passage that, uh, that Paige read for us, and we just think about the, the story, what we see is widespread failure to keep this covenant. We see that the Israelites persist in their rebellion. They, they forsake the covenant that God made with them. They engage in all kinds of detestable practices. And because they broke faith with their God, God allowed them to reap the consequences of their sin. And his instrument for bringing about his divine judgment is the Babylonian Empire. And in the year 597, King Nebuchadnezzar, he comes down to Israel and he deports Ezekiel and a group of his fellow countrymen all the way to Babylon. Pretty significant journey. And from roughly the years 593 BC to 571 BC, Ezekiel ministers. This is, this is the time of his prophetic ministry to a people who had broken covenant with, with the Lord and had been forced from their homes. And, and, and his message to this exiled people is a radically God-centered message. He wanted the Israelites to know that despite their unfaithfulness, God was still going to act. God was going to intervene for the sake of his holy and great name. In Ezekiel 36, God puts it like this. He says, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in land, for the idols which, which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In other words, this is why you're living in Babylon. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. Now get this. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? In other words, what, what Israel does is, is they create a situation that calls into question God's greatness. The other nations looked at the, the exiled Israelites and they thought, you know, didn't, didn't these people uh, only have one God? Wasn't it this, this, this God that went by the name Yahweh? Well, this one God, he must not be a very powerful God because he, he couldn't even keep his people from being conquered. Uh, this, this people, the Israelites, they had to go out of his land. So clearly, the gods of the Babylonians must be stronger than this one God. They must be more powerful than this, this Yahweh individual. <laughs> In Ezekiel 36, verse 22, God says this. He says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And so, the book of Ezekiel contains this great promise of redemption and restoration. And this book is, is full of, of, of several themes that would be exciting to trace out. Uh, I think a really important message would be the unpacking of why God acts for the sake of his great and holy name. But what I want us to see this morning is how Ezekiel 
helps us make sense of the world in which we live. Our sermon series is entitled One Story because there is a grand story. There's a a meta-narrative that that unifies all of history. But you know all of us have stories too. And I'm just not talking about our, our biographical sketch like, you know, where we were born and what it was like growing up and how we came to be where we are today. I'm also talking about the stories that, that, that we tell ourselves to help us make sense of our world. You see, all of us, what we do is we take the individual data points that are available to us and we string them together in a way that, that helps us understand the world we live in. Say, for instance, students, you get a bad grade on a test. Well, you're going to come up with an explanation for that. You're going to survey the facts that are available to you, and you're going to piece them together in a way that tells the story. Let's just say, for instance, that maybe uh, a lot of the, the really the smart kids in the class, that, that the, even they didn't get an A on this test. And so maybe the story you tell yourself is that you, you just have a really difficult teacher. Or, or what about if, if on the previous test, you, you studied a little harder and you made a better grade, then maybe, maybe the story that you tell yourself is that you just didn't study hard enough. E- either way, you're going to construct a narrative that's going to offer an explanation for the result. Or let, let's just take another example. Let's just say you interview for a promotion at work, and another candidate gets selected instead of you. Well, part of being human is to search for an explanation to that. You, you'll, you'll take stock of the the data points that are available to you, and you'll construct a narrative. Maybe, maybe the story you'll tell yourself is that, is that the other person who was selected is just a more qualified candidate. Or, or maybe you'll look at the data, and the story that you'll tell yourself is that there was just someone on that search committee that didn't like you. You, you see, what we do as human beings is just we assemble all this information that's available to us into stories that help us make sense of our world. And all of us will instinctively come up with a story to help us answer the really big questions in life. You see, all of us are searching for an answer to to at least two questions. And, And the first one is this, what is fundamentally wrong with the world? What, what's the best explanation for all the brokenness that we see around us. And question number two is, what's the solution? How do we rectify the problem? How how do we make things right in the world? And today I want us to see how Ezekiel helps us answer these two questions. And it's important we answer these questions because it helps us understand a lot of the the fracturing that's been happening in, in our nation over the past decade. A lot of the the splintering that we have begun to see in our society is really because people have bought into completely different stories to answer those two questions. And I'd like to share with you three uh, of the more popular explanations that are in our culture today. And then I want us to look at Ezekiel's explanation. So why do we live in a broken and messy world and how can we make things right? Well, if you buy into the philosophy of Karl Marx, the explanation you would offer is that brokenness exists 
because of the creation of private property. It's private property that has given rise to all the evils and of exploitation and of class struggle. And, and that means that, that, that evil is not an internal problem. It, it's an external one. Evil isn't something that exists in here. Uh, evil's out there. Evil originates in social and economic relations. And the answer to this problem, the way that the world can be made right again, according to Marx, is revolution. The world will be set right when the oppressed rise up in revolution against their oppressors and they destroy the private ownership of property. In other words, all the evils of the world can be solved by changing external social structures. And according to Marx, when we have a classless society that's void of all private property, that's when conflict and evil will be vanquished from our world. Now, I, I realize Karl Marx has been pushing up daisies for some time, but, but here, here's, here's what I want us to realize, that the offshoots of his philosophy are growing in popularity today. People are arguing that the best way to understand the world that we live in is in terms of power dynamics. And every individual is either oppressed or an oppressor. And it just depends on your race, your class, your gender, your, your sexuality, etc., etc. And, and the way people need to understand their identity is, is not as one made in the image of God, but rather the identity that we assign ourselves, the, the identity that we, we declare for ourselves. And, 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 and once we have that identity figured out, that the way that we alleviate the problems in the world is by we go and, and we try and liberate um, those, those identities that have been oppressed and those that have been marginalized by giving them a greater voice and giving them a greater attention, allowing the state to control as much as the resources is necessary to ensure everyone gets their fair share. So that's one narrative or story for what's wrong with the world and how things can be made right. Well, what about the story that's offered to us by Buddhism, Hinduism, and the other Eastern thought that's given rise to the New Age movement? What explanation and solution do they offer? Well, in, in Hinduism, the fundamental problem or dilemma is that we as humans don't know we're a part of God. And by God, I don't mean a personal, knowable God that's distinct from creation. We're talking about an impersonal and unknowable force. See, we, we, just, we just have this illusion that we have an identity, that we have autonomy, that, that we have this, this existence that really is our own. And this is what gives birth to greed and selfishness and conflict and warfare. In Buddhism, it's our own individual desires that are the cause of suffering. And the solution offered, the way that we escape the wheel of suffering, because history isn't linear, it's not going from point A to point B, it's circular, it just keeps on spinning. The way that we, we escape the wheel of suffering is through practices that help us empty our minds of worldly concerns and earthly attachments. And through practices like yoga and transcendental meditation and centering, we can free ourselves from this illusion of individuality. For the, the Buddhist, the ultimate hope is to reach non-existence. 
Nirvana is the end of existence where one escapes reincarnation and the will of suffering. So that's, that's a, a second narrative that's out there. Well, a third and, and really popular narrative is the one that's offered to us by secular humanism. Now, to understand the secular worldview, you need to know that, that the story that secularism offers begins with a presupposition that there's no such thing as the supernatural, which means that the starting point for this story is the denial of the existence of God or any cosmic power or spiritual force. All that exists is the material world. The universe is all that there is or was or ever will be. And really, it was Charles Darwin with his theory of evolution that paved the way for this narrative to gain traction. And at its core, this story says that the best explanation for our existence is that we have evolved through unguided, undirected, natural selection of random mutations. So the reason we're here is just time plus chance. The, the right atoms happen to bump into each other at the right time. And so what that means is when it comes to explaining a lot of the brokenness in the world, the, the secular worldview would say, that's just the way things are. I mean, life is random. It, it's the result of blind, purposeless evolution. And so it's really difficult for the secular humanist to hold up an ideal and say, you know, th this is the way that things ought to be. This is really how things should be in our world. Instead, secularists have to debate what kind of behaviors would create progress and, and help us be, be better fitted for survival. There can be no appeal to an objective, universal, transcendent moral code or law. Instead, they just have to continually debate about what actions and behaviors are, are, are in our best interest right now. And, and I realize as I unpack these differing explanations, this might feel like a, a bit of just a random shotgun blast of facts. And really, it's, it's not important that you remember all the specifics. What's important is that you get a sense for what, what really what we're talking about is competing stories. These are conflicting narratives for how to make sense of the world we live in. People are looking at the same set of facts. They, they see the ills in our world, and they're offering completely different stories to explain it and to solve it. And the Bible offers us an explanation that's different from these other stories. The Bible, you see, is just not this book of, just not a book of inspirational quotes and it's not like the really long, unabridged version of how a person can be saved. The, the Bible is relevant for all of life. And, and it really helps us make sense of the world that we live in. And the Bible teaches us that the fundamental problem with our world is mankind's revolt against God's authority. The Bible says that as human beings, we've committed treason. We've rebelled against God. And, and there's a little three-letter word for this disobedience. Anybody want to guess? You've probably guessed it. Sin. That's right. And the Bible says that all of us have a sin problem. 
And, and the reason we have this sin problem, it's not something that we can go and we can blame and say, oh, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was bad teaching. It was, it was insufficient education. It was, it was poor modeling. No, the reason we sin is it's, it's out of our own volition. We sin because of our own desires. And when we sin, the consequences of our sin, they ripple outwards. You see, our rebellion against God affects every human system in one way or another. Sin can even take the, the structural form of laws, rules, customs, habits. Because when sinners get together and they form societies and institutions and laws, what happens is, is we can bring our sinfulness into the equation. And so we can even speak of systemic sin. Now, if our, our, our problem, as the Bible says, the, the, the reason that we have the, the, the problem, the, the brokenness and um, just the messiness, the corruption, the decay in the world is because of our rebellion against God. Well, what does the Bible say is our solution? Well, some might say that God has ordained the establishment of these institutions. We see the family, we see government, we see the church. And when we get these things right, when we get these things humming like they should be, well, then we'll fix things. And I think Ezekiel would push back on that. He would say, yes, these, these institutions are wonderful gifts from God. And, and when we get these right, certainly they can help restrain sin. They can certainly help the world become a better place. But what they don't do is they don't get to the root of the problem. These institutions can't get to the heart of the problem, which is a heart problem. In Ezekiel 11 and 36, God gives us part one of the two-part solution to making the world right again. He tells us how restoration can occur. In the passage that Paige read for us earlier, God makes this promise. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. What God is telling us in this passage is that our sin problem runs so deep, we can't solve it ourselves. God is going to need to intervene on our behalf because we have hearts of stone. In other words, we have hearts that are cold and hard and defiant and unresponsive to God. And unless God comes and puts a new heart within us, we will persist in our rebellion. The solution, according to Ezekiel, is that we need God to come and initiate a heart transplant. Instead of our natural heart of stone, we need God to give us a heart of flesh. Now just, just think about that contrast for a minute. What, what is flesh like in relation to stone? Well, it's, it's soft. It's tender. It can be pricked. It's alive. It can feel. It can love. When, when a person with a heart of stone sins, what happens? They rationalize it. They say, oh, that was nothing. It's no big deal. But when a person with a heart of flesh sins, 
their conscience can be pricked by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and they're grieved that they went astray, that they sinned. You, you see, the, the heart of flesh is the heart that has this genuine desire to love the Lord and to walk in His ways. And how do we get a heart like this? Well, Ezekiel is clear. This is not something that we can do for ourselves. God must do it. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, your outward works will not change it. You may rub as long as you ever like the outside of a bottle, but you could not turn ditch water into wine. You may polish the exterior of your lantern, but it will not give you light until the candle burns within. The gardener may prune a crab tree, but all the pruning in the world won't turn it into an apricot. So you may attend to all the moralities in the world, but these won't change your heart. Polish your shilling, but it will not change it into gold, nor will your heart alter its own nature. What then is to be done? Christ is the great heart changer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. What's fundamentally wrong with our world? Well, it's our rebellion against God. Our, our greatest problem of all is our heart problem. It, it's, a, it's a heart that's cold and hard and unresponsive to God. And the only way for that problem to be dealt with is for God to come and to provide us with a new spirit and a heart of flesh. This is part one of his two-part solution. And in a future series, we'll look at part two, which is what Ezekiel highlights for us in chapter 37, with this promise of a new David who will come and be king over us. You see, at a future point in time, a king is going to come who will restore every facet of this world that's been corrupted by the far-reaching effects of our sin. But what God wants to do is He wants to start with us, His prized creation, the culmination of His creative activity, those of us who were created in His image. Now let me be clear. When we become Christians, what we're not saying is, that we're going to somehow clean up our lives and we're going to turn some things around. Christianity isn't this moral refurbishment project where we, we, we shed some junk and we clean up our act. It is a total transformation project that God does. God says, I need to change you from the inside out. I need to come and, and I need to make you a new creation. I need to put my spirit in you. I need to regenerate you and take away your rebellious heart and give you a heart that will be sensitive to my will so that you can be my people and I can be your God. In John chapter 20, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he appears to his disciples. And verse 22 reveals what might seem like a strange scene if we weren't familiar with God's entire plan of redemption. It says, and when he had said this, this is referring to Jesus, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The new spirit that's promised by Ezekiel 
the one that God said he was going to put in his people. That's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's given by Jesus, the one who was sent from the Father. And when we have this Spirit in us, that's when we can truly begin to become all that God would want us to be. And we can begin to work to bring His values into our broken world. And as I think about God changing our hearts of stone to those of flesh, I can't help but think about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. That great children's classic written by C.S. Lewis. He was a man who was well acquainted with the one story of Scripture. And I want to show you a scene now from the movie that's based off this book that beautifully depicts what Ezekiel promised. And as you watch this, I hope for some that it will remind you of the great miracle that God has worked in your life. May it cause you to reflect on God's graciousness and how, how he came and intervened to change your heart from one of stone to one of flesh. And for others, I pray that as you watch this, that you would recognize your need for God and for him to work this miracle in your life. Hurry and search the castle. Will you pray with me? God, we recognize that apart from your work in our lives, from a spiritual standpoint, that we are just like those frozen statues. And in spite of our rebellion, we, we thank you that you would be willing to come and to take our hearts of stone and replace it with one that's soft and tender and responsive to your leading. And God, I pray right now for the person listening who is yet to receive the heart transplant that you offer. And if that's you, I want to invite you to make the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And to make the best decision you'll ever make in your life. And that's to allow God to begin the heart transplant that you need. And if you want to do that, you can just say a prayer like this. You can say, Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth. 
and living the perfect life I could never live. And bearing the penalty for my rebellion. I acknowledge you to be my Savior and Lord. And I ask that you would come now. And that you would fill me with the Spirit that you promised to send. Your Spirit. Would you lead me? Would you guide me? Thank you for making me a new creation. I want to serve you and follow you all the days of my life. And we pray this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.